Good morning. Everybody enjoy that extra hour of sleep last night? Nobody went to bed an hour later, right? right. Just making sure. You should all be very, very awake at this point. The passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, in Romans 7 is, to me, a phenomenal passage, an amazing statement. It's another another of many uh, life-changing, worldview-changing things that, that Paul sets before us in this great book. Uh, and it really goes, goes to the essence, to the heart of what it means to serve God from the heart. Uh, so... I pray that uh, that all of us will be paying attention, not to my words, but to what God has declared in these six verses. Uh, let me just uh, first just show you where we're going this morning, and there are there are four key points in verses one through six as I see it. First is that death ends the jurisdiction of the law over us. Second, Paul, in order to drive home his point about our release from the law, provides an analogy. When a woman's husband dies, she is free to marry another, in verses 2 and 3. Then he moves from analogy to reality in verse 4. You died to the law in order to be joined to Christ. And then in verses 5 and 6, he gets, I believe, to the very a core of the issue of our relationship to the law as believers. And he says, we serve in newness of spirit, not in oldness of the letter. I'd like to ask you to stand while we read this passage. It's not a long one. Romans 7, starting at verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Dear Father, I pray that, again, that you would make us attentive to that which you have set before us here in these six verses, that we would understand what it means, Father, that that we have been released from the law and joined to Christ. This is a very powerful truth. And we pray, Lord, that that we wouldn't walk away from here taking this lightly or for granted, but we would recognize that this is a radical difference of life 
and lifestyle to which you have called us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. First in verses in Romans 7, verse 1, Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. He specifically says here that he is speaking to those who know the law. And he calls them brethren. In verse 4, he makes it clear that by brethren, he means believers, because he says those who were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. But when he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, does this mean he's singling out just the Jews in Rome and he's not talking to Gentiles? In Romans 1, verses 5 and 6, we saw that Paul declared his core audience to be Gentiles. But he says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And he continually sought to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews, whom he calls in chapter 9 his brethren according to the flesh. In his letters to the churches, uh, Paul often focused his comments toward Jewish believers, and I think that's what he's doing here. But when he says that these, uh, what he says in these verses doesn't just apply to the Jews in Rome, the Jewish believers in Rome, I believe it applies to all. There were a lot of uh, Gentile proselytes who were worshiping in the synagogues and had knowledge of the law. You and I certainly have knowledge of the law. His question in 7.1 is key to understanding really not just verses 1 through 6, but everything that he says in chapters 7 and 8. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? He frames the question in the positive, but he answers it in the negative. That is, he focuses in his answer not on, on how the law comes to have jurisdiction over us, but on how it comes to not have jurisdiction over us. So the point of his question in verse 1 is to assert that the law stops having jurisdiction over us, over a person when that person dies. Uh, By the way, the word translated has jurisdiction in verse 1 is the word that means to rule over. It's from the, the same root word that the word Lord comes from. Uh, it's the same word Paul used in chapter 6, verse 9, when he said, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. That mas- is master over him is the same word. In verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, when he said, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Again, the same word. So the idea in 7.1 is that when a person dies he ceases to be under the rule or mastery of law. But in what way did the law, specifically the law of Moses, have mastery over us before we were redeemed? Hold on to that question for a little bit because we're going to try to dig deep into it as we proceed. And it, it, it is uh, central to Paul's argument, as we'll see. In verses 2 and 3, Paul moves from the question to an illustration, an analogy, to to demonstrate his point that death frees us from being ruled by law. 
The example that he gives doesn't actually talk about the death of the person who's being freed from obligation to the law. Instead, the analogy refers to the freedom from the law that applies to the the covenant of marriage for a woman who survives the death of her husband. Now, because the analogy doesn't perfectly match up with the reality about which Paul is speaking, we really shouldn't press the illustration beyond its essential point. That point is that death releases us from obligation to the law. In verses 2 and 3, Paul says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall not be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. While the woman's husband is alive, it says she is bound by law to her husband. If she leaves her husband, even by divorce, and marries another, she's called an adulteress. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9, about the man. If he divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman, he commits adultery. The word bound in verse 2 is a forceful word that is often used in the New Testament of arrest and imprisonment. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean we're supposed to see marriage as imprisonment. (laughs) It means the marriage covenant is every bit as forcefully binding as a prison sentence. That's not supposed to be a bad thing. That's supposed to be a good thing. If only all believers took the covenant of marriage that seriously. But Paul's point here isn't fundamentally about marriage. It's about our obligation to the law. Uh, Just as a wife is legally bound to her husband through the, the covenant of marriage and cannot be joined to another man unless her husband dies, we were bound to the law and could not be Bound to another. Give me one second here. I got to sort something out. Paul goes on to say that when a woman's husband dies, she is no longer bound. She is released and is free to be joined to another man. Literally, uh, to become to another man. That verbiage here is kind of interesting. 1 Corinthians 7.39 makes the same point. It says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. It's important to note as we work through the rest of Romans 7, verses 1 through 6, that when Paul is talking about the illustration and when he's talking about the reality, he speaks of our former relationship to the law as bound and our relationship uh, now to the law as released. It's also important to note that both with the, the illustration and the reality, he speaks of being released from one in order to be joined to the other. So from what were we released or unjoined, and to what have we now become joined? 
In verse 4, Paul explains that we died to the law and are joined to Christ. He said, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. So in verse 4, he moves from analogy to reality. And he says, we died to the law. We were made to die to the law to be joined to another. Uh, Again, in the illustration, it was the wife's husband who died. But in reality, it's we who die in order that we may be freed to be joined to the other. And the other to whom we are now joined is him who was raised from the dead. So it's Christ. We are freed from law to be joined to Christ. Now, the part that's consistent between the illustration and the reality is that death is required to break the bond of one relationship in order to bring about the bond of the second relationship. We must die to the mastery of the law in order to be joined to Christ. There is no other way. And verse 4 is really the central declaration of verses 1 through 6. It's very important that we rightly understand the nature of our freedom from the mastery of the law as Paul is presenting it. If we don't, we're going to miss everything that he says in the rest of chapters 7 and 8. Many have concluded that our release or freedom from the law as believers is not a freedom from obligation to keep the commandments of the law. It's only a freedom from law-keeping in a legalistic sense. In other words, they're saying it's not about whether we are still responsible to observe and obey the commandments of the law. It's only about the attitude with which we obey them. And the corollary for those who hold this position is that we're still compelled to practice certain commandments of the law of Moses, but most would say not all commandments of the law of Moses. So based on that approach, they then proceed to make a distinction between ceremonial law and moral law. I'm convinced that this approach badly misses the point that Paul is making. It assumes first a distinction in the law that's very hard to sustain from Scripture. But more problematically... It assumes that law-keeping actually contributes to righteousness. And I believe that directly violates what Paul is saying here and in numerous other passages uh, throughout his epistles about the believer's relationship to the law of Moses or to any law. This issue will come up at several points as we continue through the epistle to the Romans, but it's very much in focus here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So I want to make sure we don't rush over this. It's critical that we understand in what way we were previously bound to the law and in what way we are now released from it. All manner of false emphasis and legalism arises when we fail to understand the nature of that former bondage and that newfound freedom. In verse 2 and again in verse 6, Paul uses the phrase released from the law. And the word released is a forceful word. It means to do away with or to bring to an end. And in the passive form of the verb as it's used here, it means to have nothing more to do with. Paul's saying that our relationship with the law in some very important sense has ceased. 
He's not saying the law is bad or that the law has been abolished. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And He's not saying that the law has no further value for us as believers. He's going to go on in this chapter to say the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But He's saying in very direct and forceful terms that we who are in Jesus Christ have been released from the mastery of the law. So again... I'll ask, in what way? If the law is holy and righteous and good, if the law has not been and will not be abolished, then in what way have we as believers been released from the law? Well, first, we have not been released from the standard of holiness and righteousness that is presented in the law. In fact, we have not been released from the standard of righteousness that's demanded of us according to the law of Moses. That standard never changes because God never changes. Men are all and always accountable to what God said in Leviticus 19.2 to Israel. You are to be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confirmed that perfect standard and said it is still absolutely in force. After spending 27 verses contrasting what men consider to be righteous with what God considers to be righteous, he finishes out in chapter 5, verse 48 by saying, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are never released from the requirement to be fully conformed to to the holy and righteous character of God. And to live and act in keeping with his character. Beloved, that's the only standard that exists. And God doesn't grade on the curve. But Paul made it very clear in the first chapters of this book, especially in chapter, zeroing in on it in chapter 3, that none of us meets that standard, right? He said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks after God. There is no one who does good, not even one. So if we've, if we're never released from the righteous and holy requirement of the law, and we're also incapable of meeting that requirement, then I pose the question again. In what sense have we been released from the law as believers in Jesus Christ? It sounds like we're Convicted and condemned, we know that much. (laughs) We know that we're saved only by grace. But now that we've been saved only by grace, what's our relationship with the law? I believe Paul gives us the answer in verses 5 and 6. And the essence of that answer is that we now serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. He says, starting in verse 5, Romans 7, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. In verse 5, Paul introduces half of a contrast that he'll get into much further in chapter 8. 
And that contrast is between being in the flesh versus in the spirit. In the flesh is how he characterizes our old position before we were redeemed. In the spirit is our new position as those who belong to Christ. Throughout Paul's letters, the flesh is who we were in Adam. It doesn't merely refer to the physical body, but rather to everything about us that is associated with the fallen nature from which we have been redeemed in Christ. That nature used to be our identity, but no longer is. And that will become clearer in the next couple of weeks as we proceed through chapter 7 and 8. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 5, that when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body. To what end? To bear fruit for sin. He just said in verse 4 that we died to the law to be joined to Christ that we might bear fruit for God. But there's this rotten fruit that came about as the result of our sinful passions working through the members of our bodies. And when he says the members of our bodies, I believe he's talking about the very physical parts of our bodies. Now, up to that point, it's not particularly hard to understand. We've all experienced sinful passions, right? (laughs) We've all experienced how those sinful passions manifest themselves in our physical bodies. But there's something Paul says here that probably isn't intuitively obvious to us, and that is that those sinful passions are somehow tied up with the law. The phrase aroused by the law is literally just through the law. The sinful passions which were through the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now this connection between the law and sin is not new in this passage. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul said, The law came in that transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And a similar connection showed up in chapter 6, verse 14, when he said, For sin shall not, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now that implies that somehow the mastery of sin is tied to us being under law, right? If you go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 20, he said, By works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. (laughs) He's consistently forceful about the fact that the law does not solve the problem of sin. Instead, it makes the sin problem worse. And in the six verses we're looking at this morning, he's doing the last bit of stage setting for a more detailed discussion about that connection that we'll examine next time. But what's clear here in these six verses is that we have to be released from the law in order to produce fruit for God. In verse 6, I think he drills down on the critically important answer to how it is that we are released from the law. We serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And I believe that clause right there is one of the most important in the whole Bible. That from which we have graciously been released is the futile effort to become righteous by means of law-keeping. 
we had to be bound for a time to that approach to the law in order to come to know that we needed a Savior. But for us who have been redeemed and justified and reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that time is forever behind us. We don't need the schoolmaster of the law to bring us to Christ anymore because not only have we come to Christ, we are in Christ. So when we as believers turn back to law, any law, expecting it to somehow produce righteousness in us, it's as foolish as a grown man who has a wife and kids going back to his father's house and asking his dad to spank him because he's having so much trouble being good. And yet, in, in an only slightly more subtle way, the habit of our old nature is to take that very approach to the law even now that we've been redeemed. And that's the problem I believe Paul is addressing. It's an ancient problem, and it's just as prevalent today as it was in Paul's day. In fact, it's been around way since way before Paul. Paul's saying to those who know the law of Moses that it was necessary and, I think, inevitable for them to go through the step, the exercise of being under law, that is, of striving to make themselves righteous by law-keeping so that they could finally come to be under grace, trusting only in Christ and His righteousness. It was necessary for us to seek to serve God in oldness of the letter so that we could come to serve God in newness of the Spirit. And this is a good spot for an example of the difference between pursuing righteousness based on the letter versus pursuing righteousness based on the Spirit. In Deuteronomy 6, there's a passage that's held in very high esteem by Jews all over the world to this day. It's known as the Shema. The word Shema is from a Hebrew word that means to hear. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I read that the way I read it intentionally. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be where? On your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, in obedience to these instructions, the Jews made, especially the instruction in verse 8, the Jews made little containers or pouches that were worn on the forehead and the upper arm. And inside these pouches were tiny scrolls on which were written selected passages of Scripture one of which was the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 that we just saw. And there were, uh, there were two basic versions. There was the phylactery that was on the forehead, and there were very specific instructions about the positioning of that, of that apparatus. And there was a phylactery uh, that is in the, in the passage is worn on the hand. Uh, bound the, uh, this, these words shall be bound on your hand, but you'll notice the actual binding, the actual uh, pouch is up on the, fore, on the upper arm, and then there's a strap that goes down to the hand. There were very specific instructions about how many windings of that strap, and, uh, how many windings around the finger. Everything was very, very precise. 
Now, what was the purpose of wearing the phylacteries? Did walking around with a little scroll in a pouch on your forehead ensure that the Word of God would be on your heart? No. It simply served as a tangible reminder, a memorial, to get your attention, to help you be mindful of God's call to keep His words on your heart. And let me ask you this. Who benefited the most from these physical memorials? Whose attention did God specifically say over and over would be drawn to these kinds of memorials? The children. The children of Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, God specifically said, you shall teach them, it's in the yellow here, diligently to your sons. And then it's right after he says that, that he says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. In Exodus chapter 13, in the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we see a very similar pattern. I'm just going to read a portion of this. Verse 7, Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout uh, the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among your borders. And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with the powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Later in that same chapter, when God gave instructions for the dedication of the firstborn, he again told Israel to bind those instructions on their hands and foreheads. And yet again, he spoke of the children. Exodus 13, verse 14, he said, It shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? You shall say to him, and then you explain the whole issue of the dedication of the firstborn, that God destroyed the firstborn of Egypt when the, when the angel of death passed through the camp, and he, he saved the firstborn, he protected the firstborn of Israel. There are four passages of Scripture that the Jews placed in those little scrolls on their foreheads and, and upper arms. We just saw three of them. And in every single one of those passages, God points out that both the phylacteries themselves and the other memorial observances commanded in these passages contained in those phylacteries, like the Passover celebration, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the dedication of the firstborn, all of those reminders or memorials were given in order to prompt the curiosity of the children so that the parents would have the opportunity to explain God's amazing acts of deliverance on behalf of His people Israel. And why do I make go through all that? Who benefits most from rules and reminders that apply to external behavior? Adults or children? But what's the ultimate intent of the externals? It is to bring about internal change. In Deuteronomy 6, 6, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. 
Deuteronomy 11.9, it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. God gave Israel commands about external behaviors so that they would know how to be, not so they would know how to become righteous by doing those behaviors, but so that they would know God. So they'd know Him, His character, and His mighty acts of deliverance and His grace. But the Jews did what all men do before they come to know the grace of God. They confused external compliance with, uh, with the commandment with internal compliance. They focused on the letter of the, the letter of the law and not on the spirit. The letter was fulfilled by wearing the phylactery. The spirit is fulfilled when the law of God is written on the hearts of men. In Matthew 23, when Jesus was sternly rebuking the Pharisees for not practicing what they preached, he said this to the multitudes gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. And he said this to his own disciples as well in their hearing. He said, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They don't practice what they preach. He said, and they tie up heavy loads and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. It was as if the Jewish leaders had come to the conclusion that whoever had the biggest phylactery was the most godly man. (laughs) As is always the case when we focus our eyes on externals, we turn our attention to men whom we can see with our physical eyes instead of to God whom we see with the eyes of the heart. And we start making comparisons between people. And at that point, what people think of us and what we think of them becomes more important to us than what God thinks of either. When we embrace that approach, hypocrisy and legalism become the order of the day. Did the phylacteries on a Jew's arm and forehead serve a constructive purpose? Yes, when the heart was right. But was the external sign, the phylactery, itself ever equal to having the Word of God in one's heart? No. External compliance to the law without an internal heart for God is useless. In fact, it's worse than useless because it is the ingrained tendency of our old man to pursue external compliance at the expense of genuine righteousness. What does it mean to serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter? It's huge. (laughs) It's life-changing. It's about taking our eyes off of externals and setting the eyes of our hearts on the one to whom we have been joined, Jesus Christ. It's about recognizing the evangelistic purpose of the law to bring us to Christ and then clinging to Him to whom the law pointed. 
It's about taking off the phylactery because the law of God has been written on our hearts. It's about setting aside childish things and pressing on to maturity as those who have been released from the law and joined to Christ. At the heart of it, it's all about Jesus. Again, Jesus made it clear on the Sermon on the Mount, he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. But you see, the whole point here is that he is the one who fulfills it. There's only one law keeper, and his name is Jesus. Our efforts at law keeping will never add anything to our righteousness, not to our positional righteousness, not to our essential righteousness, not to our practical righteousness, because the only righteousness that we have is his. Law keeping, whether it's of the law of Moses or of some lesser law that we presume to devise, is of zero value in our struggle against sin. And it will never produce fruit from God. We must, we must die to the law in order to produce fruit from God. Now, if your reaction to this is to think that Paul's saying that real practical godliness doesn't matter, or or to think I'm saying that real practical godliness doesn't matter, then you're misunderstanding this in the worst possible way. It is precisely for the sake of true godliness that we must die to the law. There is no other way to produce fruit for God. Every time we turn back to the law thinking it contributes something to true righteousness, we violate grace and we demean what Jesus accomplished at the cross. When I met with the guys on Wednesday morning, I got a lot lot of great input on this passage, as always. But there was one comment that particularly stood out in my mind. And it was when my brother John Marr said to me, don't forget to talk about laziness. He went on to explain what he meant. And I believe it's of exceedingly critical importance to us. I'll try to explain it by means of a few questions. Which is easier, wearing a pouch that has important verses in it or having the word of God written on your heart. Which is easier? Doing things that look loving or being loving? Which is easier? Following a set of rules that tell you specifically what to do and what not to do in every situation or getting so familiar with the character of God that you do what is right without rules? Which is easier? Knowing stuff about God or knowing God. Law-keeping is the lazy man's shortcut to godliness, but there's a serious problem with the shortcut. It doesn't work. It does not and cannot produce righteousness. What it produces instead is self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and legalism. And in the process, in the body of Christ, it produces division. By the way, I looked all over the Bible for even one occurrence of the phrase, the spirit of the law. You know what? I couldn't find any. You know why I think that is? (laughs) It's because walking by the spirit has nothing to do with law keeping. Found references to the letter of the law, but not to the spirit of the law. In Galatians 5.18, Paul said, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. 
when he says in Romans 7, 6 that we now serve a newness of the Spirit and not an oldness of the letter, I'm convinced he intends the word Spirit to be capitalized. He's not talking about two different approaches to the law. He's talking about two completely different realms of experience. One that's tied to the law and the other that's dead to the law and joined to Christ and ruled by the Holy Spirit. And that's, that is the focus of chapter 8, as we'll see. Serving in newness of the Spirit isn't about rules, it's about relationship. And the heart of that service that is rendered in newness of the Spirit is love. Love for God and response to His love for us and then love for men as the outworking of the love that we have for God. We just saw a little while ago that there was a critical connection between the external reminders in the law of Moses and the training of children concerning the character and works of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child. Think as a child. Reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. What's the theme of that whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? It's love. Love is that to which we grow up in Christ. It is that which fulfills the law. Just before Jesus delivered a scathing indictment against the Pharisees for their gross hypocrisy and legalism in Matthew 23, which included his accusation about them broadening their phylacteries to be noticed by men, we find in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, a one-on-one conversation that Jesus had with a man who was considered an authority on the law of Moses. It says, verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. (laughs) That's a very tricky thing to try to do. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In Romans 13.10, Paul said, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. John 15, verses 12 to 17, begins and ends with Christ's commandment to us to love one another just as He has loved us. And what's the theme of that great chapter, John 15? Abiding in the vine. How do you produce fruit for God? How do you fulfill the commandment which is itself the fulfillment of the whole law? to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself, you abide in Christ. We saw in Romans 7, 4 that we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that we might be joined to Christ himself. We went from rules to relationship and the outcome of our death to law and our union with Christ 
is that we bear fruit for God. We don't bear fruit for God by trying to produce fruit. (laughs) We'll never do it that way. Does a branch have to think really hard about producing fruit? No, it just has to abide in the vine. We bear fruit by abiding in Him, the one who is the true vine. As we abide in Him, the love that He has poured out upon us and within us overflows from us to others. 1 John 4, 7 said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is where? It's from God. (laughs) And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And verse 10 of that chapter says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then verse 19 says, We love because He first loved us. Galatians 5, and 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The fruit of what? The fruit of the Spirit. To get the fruit called love... Do you just try to be more loving? No. You get it by abiding in the vine. Do you get joy and peace by trying to be more joyful? Some people are committed to that. But that's not how you get joy or peace. Joy and peace come by being very familiar with the person and work of God. And it is the Holy Spirit, not you, who produces joy and peace in your heart. We have been freed from the mastery of the law and are now bound to the mastery of Jesus Christ. We no longer seek in futility to serve God in the oldness of the letter. But we serve in newness of the Holy Spirit who is in us. The fruitlessness of our bondage to the law has given way to true fruitfulness for God. As Jesus Christ lives out His holiness and His righteousness in us and through us. When we get the fact that it is all of Him and none of us, things start to really make sense. And then we know what we must do. We must constantly keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. There is no other way. Loving Father, Thank you for uh, for these words. Thank you for these six little verses that, that are so uh, powerful, that challenge us, that challenge the way we think about things. Lord, you know that our hearts are prone to seek out a checklist so that, that we can mark things off and know that we're okay with you. And you've made it crystal clear, Lord, that that's not how it works. The law that you graciously gave to your people Israel shows us one thing more than any other. It shows us that in light of your holy character, we are unholy and desperately in need of a Savior. It's our tutor that leads us 
to stand face to face with our Savior that we might trust only in Him. And we thank You, Father, that that trust is not just to get justified, to be declared righteous in Your eyes. That trust is what takes us through every step of of this life. Your righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Teach us, Lord, to, uh, to depend not upon ourselves or our contrivances in any, any point, uh, at any point in, or in any way, but to trust only in you. Teach us to be so focused on that, on that trust in you that you're the only one we look at. We don't look at each other. We don't even introspect that much and look at ourselves. We simply keep our eyes focused upon you and know that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory, that guarantees that we will be made righteous, not just in position, but in practice. Make us holy, Father. Make us useful to you for your eternal purposes and use us as light in this darkness to draw other people to your Son. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.